it, it's almost a miracle when you think that Earth exists at all. And you look and see all the other incredible places out there in the universe, but only this place is suitable for us. And it isn't just air to breathe, water to drink, and food to eat, and, you know, appropriate temperature and all that. It's the fact that our history is here. We are connected inextricably to the rest of life on Earth. Hello, and welcome to the Shiftmakers podcast, where we share the collective wisdom some of our greatest minds have to offer. I am your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the years, I've had the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these recordings with you for this podcast. Welcome to Shiftmakers. My guest today, Dr. Sylvia Earle, is an internationally renowned marine biologist, aquanaut, conservationist, and author who has led over 100 expeditions, logged more than 7,000 hours underwater, authored more than 200 publications, and lectured in 90 countries. Called Her Deepness by The New Yorker and The New York Times, a living legend by the Library of Congress, and the first hero for the planet by Time magazine, Sylvia was one of the first women to enter the male-dominated field of ocean exploration and the first ever woman to serve as the chief scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Her work continues to inspire, influence, and awaken people all over the world as we become more aware of our symbiotic relationship to the vast expanses of Earth's largest bodies of water, which have absorbed more than 90% of the global warming created by humans since the 1970s, and which simultaneously provide most of the oxygen that we breathe. Sylvia most recently entered popular discourse through her appearance in Seaspiracy on Netflix, and she even has a Lego minifigure modeled after her. We spoke upon the release of her new book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey, which unveils the power and significance of our planet's ocean, its fundamental importance in shaping our climate, and its vital role in supporting a multitude of species, including the human race. And it is so great to see you and speak to you again. I was thinking about the last time I saw you was at the World Oceans Conference at the UN. And I'm really excited to talk to you about this incredible new book that you have. Tell me why you decided to do this book now. And, you know, what are you hoping that readers will take away from it? It was opportune to have a quiet year <laughs> to sit back <laughs> and literally take stock of what we know and what we don't know about the ocean and why it matters and to understand how what we do affects the ocean and how the ocean affects everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And National Geographic agreed that it was time. I, I have done two previous big ocean books for the National Geographic, but this one really focuses more on the, the bigger questions, not just to show beautiful images and maps. This one is to tell the story of the ocean and to feature individuals who have spent lifetimes trying to figure out what's going on out there, down there, and what's it all mean relative to human society. And, and really to show that the ocean is alive. And one of the things I love most about this book is that you'll see creatures that you don't expect because they're not in our everyday lives, most of the, at least the awareness of their existence. But there's a centerfold in the book that folds out both sides of, you know, four pages of the, the just the spectacular nature of sea creatures that, that um, are unlike anything that occurs on the land. All of the major divisions of animal life, and there are about 30, depending on how you count, maybe 35 divisions of animals, and only about half of them occur anywhere on the land or in freshwater. All of them are out there in the ocean, including so many that live only in the ocean. Most people have never heard of arrow worms or spoon worms or peanut worms, and they sound kind of icky, but they're not. They're beautiful. And all the variations on the theme of jellies, I mean, comb jellies, uh, these gelatinous creatures that shimmer with with rainbow colors, and of course, jellyfishes that we kind of think we know, huh? but think again. 
the variations on the theme of these extraordinary creatures that are home in the sea that shape the nature of the ocean that shapes our lives. It's making those connections that I find that this book really shines with the stories told by those people who have spent their lives getting to know bioluminescence, the living light that occurs in the deep sea. Um, <laughs> you think you might know squid if you eat calamari? Well, squids are amazing creatures that are really important to the ocean and therefore to us. And we might think twice about putting them on our menu when you think how important they are alive out there in the ocean. It actually is astounding. It's like what you, you were saying about how many different forms of life and um, the beauty that is underneath the coral and everything else. As someone who has studied and explored literally firsthand, and not to make a pun, but in the depths of the oceans, what most sort of like awes you about what is underneath the ocean, what the oceans represents? From the surface, the ocean probably looks much the same today as it did a thousand years ago or any time during the existence of, of the ocean throughout time. But underneath, as soon as you put your face in the water, you begin to see that the ocean is alive. I've had thousands of hours exploring the ocean, just diving, snorkeling, and otherwise getting wet, but also living underwater on 10 different occasions. It is actually in an underwater laboratory, day and night, to actually be in the presence of the living ocean and to get to know individual creatures. The first time that I spent two weeks living underwater is 1970. I had spent a lot of time just in and out diving before, but to, to really have the opportunity to get to know individual fish, the five angel fish that would swim together by day. And at night they'd all go their separate ways, but in the morning they'd come out and swim around together. And, and some, including adult angel fish that pair up for life, getting to see these pairs of fish. Some of the little butterfly fish also mate for life. Seahorses tend to pair up. And, you know, like some people, they stay together for life. <laughs> but knowing that the habits of fish, how they engage with not only members of their own species, but also sometimes, you know, we, we just underestimate the nature, the social interactions among fish. A, a grouper and moray eels tend to pair up and go fishing together. I mean, fish eat fish, so they're allowed. I stopped eating fish a long time ago as I know too much about who they are, not just what they are. And I also know what they've been eating that I'd rather not have it in me, but never, you know, grouper also sometimes team up with octopuses and they go fishing together. It's, it's like seeing a, what, a dog and a lizard going out and, and teaming up together it, it, or even more because here's an invertebrate creatures without backbones the octopuses and a fellow vertebrate we have backbones too but off they go somehow connecting and working together in partnerships those are the kinds of stories that i hope people will enjoy that are embodied in this big ocean book i think one aspect that I really think is meaningful is that the whole story of the ocean points to how on my watch with the opportunity to witness this greatest era of discovery, of understanding how the ocean functions with currents and tides and, and the connection to climate and weather, but also how the ocean is changing through our actions, what we're putting into the ocean and what we're taking out of the ocean and how now we 21st century human beings, mm -hmm. the best chance we'll ever have to protect the ocean mm -hmm. and to take action with um, a network of, of protected areas. Every chapter talks about a hope spot, mm -hmm. a place that with a network of other areas 
around the world, if protected, can really secure the health of the ocean and why that matters to our health. Yeah, take a moment to talk about hope spots, which I just love just the just the concept of that. Why, you know, what are hope spots and why are they important? On the land, starting early in the 20th century, in the United States and around the world, people began to recognize the importance of protecting natural areas that were fast disappearing. You know, trees were being cut, wildlife was being killed, having parks, safe areas where where nature could thrive, partly because we thrive when nature thrives, but it seemed like just the right thing to do to embrace wild places with care. Now we know that it's critical that we do this because the nature of the planet is shaped by the living creatures that have made earth habitable ultimately for us. We could not exist without nature. Now it appears that nature cannot exist without us, without proactive attention on our part to not let all of the trees be clear cut. We're, we're doing a pretty good job, you know, when you think how much we've transformed the land to foster our short-term prosperity. But our long-term prosperity really means we must protect nature. It's, nature gives us, well, trees, all the, the living uh, photosynthetic organisms in the ocean and on the land have generated the oxygen in the atmosphere. This is a living system. Capturing carbon is a biological process. And we have done such... Uh, well, we have diminished the nature of the terrestrial systems on the land to the point where we put ourselves at risk and now diminishing the nature of the ocean and living systems there has also really damaged our life support system, if you will. The systems that generate oxygen, capture carbon dioxide, create this network of life that makes Earth a miracle in a universe that's really not very friendly to the likes of us. So safeguarding nature, national parks on the land, protected areas on the land. Now we must do the same thing in the ocean. You know, in a sense, we have to look at all of nature, not just protected areas, but hope spots. These special places are similar to national parks and, and reserves, wildlife sanctuaries on the land but they recognize that we need places where fish can do what it takes to make more fish. We need to protect the feeding areas, the breeding areas. We need to find champions and communities around the world who are willing to stand up and take action to protect the ocean. That's what the hope spots are about. Sort of a long roundabout way of getting to your straightforward question. What are hope spots? Places that people have recognized and are willing to champion for protecting and therefore restore health to the ocean that matters to our health as well. Absolutely. And proof that change, you know, when you, when you do create change, you can create hope and you can create transformation. It's not too late for any of these systems. Now, I do remember in, you, in our last interview and you just talked about how the ocean is, is the life support system on this planet. Um, for, for people hear a lot about, of course, the urgent issue of climate change, but may not really understand the implications of the world's oceans, you know, and why is protecting saving the oceans so essential to our planet's future? Let's just try to imagine Earth without the ocean. That's where most of Earth's water is. 97% of Earth's water is out there in the ocean. And it's not just water, it's alive. It's a living system. So if you like to breathe, you'll listen up. Most of the oxygen generated from green things in the ocean, the air we breathe, the oxygen in the air we breathe, where it has come from over hundreds of millions of years and continues to do so. Of course, 
trees and other vegetation on the land contributes oxygen and captures carbon. But the heavy lifting has been and still is in the ocean. So thank you, ocean. I can breathe. Water. <laughs> we all need water. It's a single non-negotiable thing that all life requires. So if you understand the water cycle, where does rain come from? Where does water in the ground come from? It is cycling continuously from the ocean into the atmosphere, into clouds that fall back on the, the, the water in the clouds as rain, sleet, and snow, and replenishes the lakes and rivers, streams, groundwater. Without the ocean, there could be no life on the land and certainly no us. So it's not just, okay, you've got the water, you've got life in the ocean, but think about how we are disrupting these cycles through what we're putting into the ocean, changing the chemistry of the ocean, warming the ocean. That changes basically the nature of, of everything. And we're seeing the rising temperature having an impact on increased storms of intensity and frequency. We're seeing an impact on the, cha the changing temperature in sea level rise. Warmer water occupies more space than cold water. The ocean is basically expanding, but it's also increasing in volume because of the melting of polar ice. So <laughs> this is something of concern, not just to future generations. It's of concern right now. What we're doing to the ocean is having an impact on our lives, on our existence. Changing the chemistry in terms of making the ocean more acidic because of the excess carbon dioxide that becomes carbonic acid means, okay, this is good news for some, bad news for others, winners and losers when you change the pH of the ocean. Well, we kind of like the ocean the way it was when I was a kid or in times past, that the organisms that thrive under the previous circumstances are the organisms that generate the oxygen in the quantities that are needed. We have about 20% of the atmosphere is oxygen. 80% is nitrogen. Just enough carbon dioxide historically to power photosynthesis and keep this big engine running. Generating oxygen, capturing carbon dioxide, maintaining the great food webs because the CO2 that is captured becomes sugar, food that then is consumed by zooplankton, consumed by little fish, squid, bigger fish, and on up the food chain to get to whales and tunas and swordfish and other big creatures. International Monetary Fund commissioned a study. Okay, International Monetary Fund, they follow the money, but now they're following the carbon, the way climate scientists are. We talk about carbon dioxide, where does it come from? Where does it go? And we're now able to look at life in the ocean owing to this study and studies, of course, that scientists have been making for many years, that the carbon that is generated by phytoplankton as food captured by out of the atmosphere becomes food, goes through the system, winds up in whales, large amounts of carbon contained in whales and the International Monetary Fund at the World Economic Forum in 2020 put a number on it. Every whale worth a lot, but together worth a trillion dollars in carbon climate uh, influence. So with whales, we kind of are beginning to get it. What about sharks? What about tunas? What about squid? They're all carbon-based units too. And keeping the carbon in the ocean, when we take them out of the ocean, we release that carbon dioxide like burning fossil fuels, burning the carbon in living organisms, similarly puts methane and carbon dioxide, exacerbating the, the carbon issue, the climate issue, keeping the carbon in the ground, like keeping oil and gas in the ground and coal helps solve the carbon crisis the climate crisis that we're now experiencing. 
keeping trees green instead of clear cutting the trees keeps the carbon intact and also maintains the carbon capturing systems that we need. And yes, we need to really bring down the burning of fossil fuels. We need to keep the oil and the coal and the gas in the ground. And we need to find alternative sources of energy to power our civilization, which we are doing, which is happening. And we need to also, in parallel with these very encouraging actions of alternatives to fossil fuels, to keep the natural systems intact, to restore what's lost. Mm -hmm. Hope spots are really, and, and other efforts that are now firing up all over the world to protect nature, enhanced protection for those systems, the wild places that still exist on the land and in the sea, but also to restore to the extent that we can what's been lost. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm, my hope is that I do feel like there's much more increasing, you know, awareness and concern because of, of sort of the existential crisis we, we face over climate change. How is it that we've lost such touch with you know, it, I remember how the sort of like the modern environmental movement, a lot of people say, you know, was sort of in, inspired by seeing Earth from space. And certainly you even seeing the oceans when you look at it. Do you think we've lost touch with the fact that we're we're like a, we're a planet <laughs> It's <laughs> spinning in space? <laughs> you know, we're one human family here. Well, we're, we're, we're not we're not even human family. We are a family, a family of all life forms. Right. Is that part of the issue that it's just we take it for granted and it seems abstract? Yes. In a word, yes. And in the book, I, I do my best with lots of other voices who are chiming in, um, profiles of visionaries and, and scientists, engineers, explorers, telling stories that might help us understand what we should see every day all around us. It is not that hard. When you look up at the sky at night, and you see all those beautiful elements in the universe beyond to just re reflect that it, it's magnificent, but it's really not very friendly. Just try setting up housekeeping on the moon or Mars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got to first think, what, are, how, what am I going to eat? Or first, what am I going to breathe? Where's the oxygen? And okay, it, maybe there's some in, contained in the rocks. How do I get the oxygen out of the rocks so that it can go be in me? And what about the temperature? What about the pressure? What about, you know, here it's um, almost a miracle when you think that Earth exists at all. And you look and see all the other incredible places out there in the universe, but only this place is suitable for us. And it isn't just air to breathe, water to drink, and food to eat, and, you know, appropriate temperature and all that. It's the fact that our history is here. We are connected inextricably to the rest of life on Earth. It, we are, maybe we're the only creatures who can see and understand that. I mean, elephants are really smart, and so are whales. And I've met some pretty smart fish in the thousands of hours I've spent underwater. But, you know, they cannot know what we know. They cannot know what 10-year-olds of today know. Actually, I, I think this is the best time in all of history to be a human being because of what we now know, that even the smartest people who ever lived before the 21st century could not know. It's not that we didn't want to know, who we are, where we've come from, or where we might be going. But we are so lucky. We can see that we've got real problems, that our actions are causing our life support system to unravel. And it's not too late if we really hurry. Climate scientists say about 10 years, this decade, we've got time, but not a lot. We've got to really take this seriously. The COVID crisis caused us to reflect on our vulnerability, how we are all in this together. The laws of nature overrule 
any laws that we create or any beliefs that we might have, hey, listen up. <laughs> we're, we're living beings vulnerable to the natural world. And if we behave ourselves, if we understand our place in the greater scheme of things, if we respect nature, we can find an enduring place for ourselves within the natural systems that keep us alive. But already think of what we've done. Those who have had the opportunity to fly up in the air and, and fly across the country or even to be able to go around the world to see our impact on the land, how at night it looks as though the whole world is on fire and it is in a way. Our habit of burning fossil fuels to illuminate our world, to heat or cool our world, to favor us has had consequences. And it would really be a problem if we didn't know we have a problem, but now we know. And that's the biggest gift I think fossil fuels have given us, the power of knowing by taking spacecraft up in the sky, by making it possible to communicate around the world, to go into the deepest parts of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Now we know we have to find alternatives to fossil fuels. Okay, thank you, fossil fuels. We get it. You've done your job. Now we have to do our job. We have to change. We don't have a choice if we are going to survive, let alone thrive. But we can. That's the great thing. We know what to do. So let's get busy. Let's protect the forests. Let's not kill any more thousand-year-old trees with, with these unfortunate fires triggered by our behavior and the changing climate and lack of respect for these amazing natural systems if we know that our life depends on them, maybe we'll, maybe we'll behave in a different way going forward. Season two of Shift Makers was brought to you by the Shift Network. Shift offers courses, programs, and workshops to unlock your full potential through transformative education and media with like-minded allies who are called to create a better world. Visit theshiftnetwork.com to learn more about their online courses, summits, and events. You know, well, I feel like what happened with the pandemic and climate change, you know, it, it did seem like when we were all sort of, um, you know, quarantined and in our homes and it was, it's, you know, I, I can't remember who had said that it was felt like it was mother nature sort of giving us all a time out to just reflect, <laughs> right. you know, I was thinking about uh, Gloria Steinem had said this phrase to me, we are linked, not ranked. And the more I thought about it, it's such a powerful framework across so many different divides, right? Gender, race, you know, national, international borders, and our interconnection with the, with the earth and with all forms of life on this earth. Do you think that that is part of the problem is both that we sort of don't really acknowledge our interconnection, but also that somehow we think that humans are ranked higher than other forms of life on this earth? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, maybe. When I look out in my yard, maybe the ants that live there think that they own the world. Or maybe the blue jays, the California jays think that, okay, we're here, but this is my yard, you know. <laughs> Cooperation, collaboration, working together, finding the good wherever it exists, finding the ways and means. Apart. You might not agree about this, but you can agree about that. And finding the, the positive connections. I think about the grouper and the octopus may not agree about a lot of things, but they do get together <laughs> and work together where it's mutually beneficial. So, you know, I think that children are not born with bias. They don't, they're colorblind, basically. They're gender blind. They're, they, they're age blind. They, they are curious. They want to know everything about everything. When I think about the role of women in shaping the world, we have a magnified influence on, on families, on children, and what they believe about themselves and about others. And we teach kids that it's okay to kill. In fact, we celebrate killing. We think it's okay to 
look at the games, look at the stories that we celebrate. Let's count, you know, our strength by how many others we de we demolish. That's learned behavior. That's not what children might do. They might do something else if we don't teach them that, you know, oh, the glory of being the the strongest. There are other glories that we should be focusing on about what we now know that we did not and could not know before because we're connected in ways that we could not be connected before. We can now have this and do have unprecedented connection to minds around the world and not even connected to a face, knowledge. that People are talking and communicating with others. It doesn't matter what race they are, uh, how tall they are, uh, how good looking they are by our standards. What is good looking? That's a learned behavior, <laughs> a learned attitude. I think that this is the best chance we'll ever have right now that to be a 21st century human being because of what we now know about the danger we are in, about the necessity of finding the best in whatever is out there whoever is out there and trying to get over the competing with one another, knowing that we have to safeguard the world and use the knowledge that now exists. We have climate change that is right here, right now, threatening not only <laughs> the, the joy of life, but our very existence. If the planet gets too warm, we will not be able to thrive, or not just thrive, exist, exist. We could not live on the planet as it was a billion years ago. There wasn't enough oxygen in the atmosphere. Photosynthesis had not yet generated sufficient oxygen or captured sufficient carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for big things to exist on the land or in the sea for that matter. Most of the action has really come about in the last half billion years when big things began to prosper. And we are, it would seem, trying to go back to that earlier time by putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, making Earth more like Mars <laughs> instead of making Mars more like Earth. We, um, we, we can understand it and see it. And that's good news, understanding the problem. Imagine if we didn't know and to keep doing the same stupid things, consuming nature as if it would never diminish, you know, poisoning the ocean as if it does, doesn't matter, poisoning the atmosphere as if, hey, it'll just go away, right? No, we are creating a new world. And it's not the world that I knew as a child. And, but we can, we can restore much of the, the damage enough, enough perhaps to secure an enduring world where we and the fabric of life that keeps us alive can live in harmony. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think in addition to the fact that I agree that there's so much increased awareness, I think one of the other parts of the solution is what you were just referring to in terms of like, you know, having, um, you know, the influence of women or just diversity. We just need diversity. We need all hands on deck right now. So you were a trailblazer. Um, you, you know, led the first all, all women team of female acronauts back in the 1970s. Um, obviously this is a time where we, um, you know, need everybody to step up, particularly, um, you know, women and, and all, all groups who have not really had their say. What advice do you have, you know, at the time when um, you first started out, you really did face outright discrimination and really had to fight for your rightful place. What advice do you have on sort of being able to forge your own path? And even when it feels like sort of the odds are stacked against you? Well, I'm mindful that the odds are stacked against everybody everywhere all the time for one reason or another. You're too tall or you're too short. You're too old or you're too young. Mm -hmm. uh, you're the wrong gender or you come from the wrong part of the planet 
you, you don't speak this language, you speak another language, mm-hmm. whatever it is. <laughs> don't let it get you down because you've got one miraculous life, yours. You are blessed to be whoever it is you are with whatever it is you've got, but you're unique. Fred Rogers used to say to the kids, you're special. And he's right. Everyone is special. It's reveling in who you are and to find the things that you're really good at. Are you good with language? Are you good with music? Are you good with art? Are you good with numbers? Do you care about animals? Do you care about kids? Do you care about trees? What, what is it that makes your heart beat fast? You know, I really love this. I'm I really, I'm, I'm at home doing this. Find joy in that and find others who share that joy and find a place for yourself within this massive, complex, amazing, blue, living planet. And it is easy to find despair, but don't let it own you. Don't let the bad guys win. Be a force for good. And it, I don't know, I see kids just overwhelmed sometimes because they let the kids around them um, berate them or not let them in or I don't know, whatever. But it works the other way too, that you, whoever you are, can be that, that connection to, to turn things from despair to recovery from letting earth decline and society rip apart, or you can become a healer. You can become the the beginning of something. It, It always starts somewhere, either bad stuff or good stuff. It starts with somebody doing something. And I don't know how to wave a magic wand. There is no such thing, but the mirror is a good place to start. Look at yourself, who you are, and do this little survey. What do I want to do with my life? Because I have choices, and the choices I make will determine whether I have a positive life or one that is just fraught with unhappiness. It's really your choice mm. and, and not letting <laughs> the just go back to that recognition that being alive is a miracle, alive, being alive. And as long as you're alive, you've got a chance to really make a difference for yourself and for the world. So get with it. Go for it. Doesn't matter who you are, what age you are, where you live. Just don't give up. Mm. Everybody needs to hear your words of wisdom. And I just want to say, because I know that you um, value being a role model and mentor for for young people and young conservationists. And I'm not sure if you remember that it was my daughter, Lotus, who watched the um, documentary Mission Blue about you. And just, I mean, it just awakened. She wanted to learn everything about you, everything about the oceans. I don't know if you remember, you, you wrote little inscriptions in your children's books. You sent them to her. And then she did a book. Um, Billy the Octopus, one of her children's books, part of Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots program. Oh. And if you remember knowing about this. Um, one person just starts. And Lotus is that one person who's, you know, making a difference. I, what is your impression? I mean, certainly young people today um, from Greta Thunberg on on, I mean, just seem so, um, so much more aware and and really like actively concerned by what's going on in the urgency. Um, what is your impression of, you know, young people today that you have come in contact with or, or are mentoring? Kids of today have access to knowledge that not only did not but could not exist when I was a kid. No one had been high in the sky to look back on Earth when I was Greta's age. Mm-hmm. 
No one had been through the deepest part of the ocean. No one knew about the microbiome that all of us mm -hmm. carry around inside of us, each one an ecosystem that is unique. And it's not just us, it's every cat, dog, bird, fish, squid. We're all ecosystems. We didn't have a clue about the prevalence, the abundance, the importance of microbes in a positive way. And we know more or less about some of the negative ways about diseases and certainly the pandemic, smallpox, but most microbes are really critical to our existence and we need them. We didn't know that. Those basic understandings just could not exist because we did not have the ability to see ourselves and see others the way we now do. And, and with this book, Ocean Global Odyssey, what I try to do is to see it's not just about people. It's how we are connected to where most of life on Earth actually is. It's out there in the ocean, the greatest diversity and abundance of life is out beyond where most people ever go or say, well, you don't see your heart either, but you know it matters. You don't see the ocean or the life that's in the ocean, but you know, I hope you'll know by diving into this book or into the other sources of information that are out there, we need nature. Nature needs us. It's all like this. Kids of today have the superpower of knowing what wasn't known before. Mm -hmm. I mean, kids are always <laughs> at the front edge of, of curiosity, wanting to know who, what, why, where, how, when. I mean, it's just not just, it's not just unique to humans. Every young thing out there is an explorer trying to figure out who am I? What am I doing here? <laughs> what is this thing called life? But 21st century kids are the best hope for the future of humankind because they have a jump start on life armed with the knowledge that now exists that literally could not exist a generation ago, let alone any time in the past. They understand the world is changing because of humans in ways that do not favor our future existence unless we get our act together. So I echo Jane Goodall's conclusion in a book that she wrote about hope a few years ago. She's got a new one out now, but the idea that what are the reasons for hope? It's, you know, the the human um, awareness that, that first of all, the, the, the ability to know and the ability to care, the resilience of nature is reason for hope. But when you come right down to it for humans and for the whole world, since we are such a dominant, having a dominant impact on all of the natural world that it's the children of today who, by influencing the grown-ups around them, that also think about where they will be in 10 years. It, I hope it's not too late. It will be too late if we wait 10 years on some things, because, for example, species are going extinct. Ecosystems are are being destroyed. Half the coral reefs are already gone. Half of them are still in good, pretty good shape. So there's cause for hope. We still have 10% of the sharks, 90% are gone, but there's still enough out there that if we behave ourselves and stop killing them, there's a chance they can recover and find and help the ecosystems of which they are critical elements can recover too. Only 3% of the bluefin tuna still remain in the Pacific, maybe 10% in the Atlantic, but they're not all gone. But we're still killing them and eating them and sushifying them and otherwise, you know, celebrating them as a culinary delight, but oh, at great cost to our future existence, even our current existence. 
So what are we thinking? We, we need to understand, and, and kids are beginning to understand how our actions are diminishing our, our chance for a prosperous future. But we also can take actions that will amplify the chances of having a prosperous future, their future, mm-hmm. and on into the next thousand or 10,000 years. But this is a critical moment. Mm-hmm. That's why we're so lucky. We are right at this sweet spot in time mm-hmm. when our actions, as never before, have a magnified significance as never again. We can do it. Mm-hmm. And, and the kids really are there doing what they can to tell us, work with us, you know, encourage us who have greater power than is in the hands of today's children. But the power of knowing is really the key. I feel like you are, you like glow with just such positivity. And, you know, I just feel like it's, it's just how you express yourself too. In a time when we're, we're so divided and there's a lot of um, cynicism and apathy and all of this, what, what, you know, you're so busy, you've been doing this work, you must get frustrated sometimes with how slow progress can be. How do you keep yourself grounded and centered and, and sort of in the, in the right headspace to continue to do this work, even though, you know, obviously you've been at it for a while and you may have days that it can be hard. <laughs> there are more whales today than there were when I was a kid because society kind of awakened to the importance of whales alive versus the importance of whales dead. Mm-hmm. And in 1986, a global moratorium stopped the commercial killing of whales. We still kill them with plastic debris and old fishing nets and by poisoning the ocean. But amazingly, they are recovering. They're, you know, they're not completely saved, neither are we, because of our actions of the past. But good news, you know, that we can take action that will show demonstrable change. There are more sea turtles today than when I was a child. Now, sea turtles are more protected, not totally, around the world. Some of them still eat these 100-year-old miracles, and then they're gone. In fact, when I was a kid, Sea turtles were available as steak or soup down in, on the way in the Florida Keys or throughout Florida, throughout the world. <laughs> but now the attitude has changed. And it, it really, I think, has been triggered by getting to know these creatures, knowing that whales are individuals, that they have families, they have society, they have culture. They have names. I mean, they, they have names for one another, not just we give them names. They give themselves names. Dolphins have a signature whistle that is, here I am, you know, whoop. <laughs> and it's unique. I can't tell the difference, perhaps, but they can tell the difference. And knowing that they have behaviors, that they aren't just lumps of meat out there, put there for us, no. Not at all. We, we're sharing space with them. We're a big community of life that extends from microbes to the biggest creatures that have ever lived, the great blue whales. And we need to make peace with nature and understanding that we're beginning to get it, that embracing special places. But what, what's not special about your backyard? All of the world is a miracle. Do your part. You can do it if you have a little piece of property that, that you're living on now in your, your front yard or backyard or whatever, think about how you can make it more compatible with, with birds and butterflies and bees and other insects that are critical to making the world safe for us. We need to make it safer for them. Lawns are beautiful, but they really aren't very good for, the, for nature as a whole. We can give back by planting a garden Mm-hmm. And think what think like a bee. What do you need to thrive? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's out there that bees love? Mm-hmm. Butterflies or whatever. 
and understand how you are a part of this glorious network of, of, of life. And I, of course, sometimes look at our behavior and I could slope down into despair because it's so frustrating to see corporations that can be and do have a character and a personality just as humans individually do uh, and good ones that are trying to do the right thing as a corporation built of many people with leadership not just at the top but throughout the whole network of people who make a corporation a corporation a big body that moves and has influence there are those that are just focused on making the most money the quickest way possible. There are others that are really content to, of course you have to make a profit in today's way of looking at how the world functions, but to do it in ways that don't destroy, that rather are a positive influence. And yet they're really stable and strong and are there for the long run, not just for the quick buck and then out at whatever cost. Being able to look at how at every level we can find a place that builds harmony instead of war and, and look for the good. There's, there are always examples, if you just look around, that should inspire you and certainly inspire me to think that we've got a really good chance to get from where we are now to a much better place, a durable, long-term, that, that thing that we call sustainability. What is that? How do we find a place within the natural systems and within the human societies that now exist? And to work compatibly, we'll never succeed if we wage war on nature will never succeed if we wage war on one another. We must find the common ground. Well, thank you so much. I We have such gratitude for your incredible work that you do. And I will be encouraging everybody to buy this astounding, important book, as well as to support just really the transformative and visionary work that you do with Mission Blue. Looking forward to, to, to continuing to spread and support your work. Well, thank you. And a special salute to Lotus and to you. National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey is available now where books are sold. And to learn more about Sylvia's work, please visit mission-blue.org. Thank you for listening. And I hope you will join us again. Shiftmakers was created by Marion Schnall and season two was developed by Joy Donnell. Story producer and editor A. Kirsten, research assistant Angela Joshi. Some audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Special thanks to Emiliano Lamone. For more information about this podcast or our host, Marianne Schnall, please visit marianneschnall.com.